Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast focused on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is an FDA-compliant cloud for medical device manufacturers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE Mark standards. The company is ISO 13485 certified, and the product on AWS is High Trust certified as well. Founded by seasoned medical device professionals, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. Galen Data allows medical device companies to stay medical device companies and not become IT companies. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Ted Bird at Dimacron discuss everything about crowdfunding, life lessons that he has carried with him to this day, how crowdfunding is perceived with investors, how they built their own platform using multiple crowdfunding channels, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Ted Bird. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future, what comes next with Project MedTech. Ted, thank you very much for being here with us today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. I am pumped to get this story, to be honest with you. Uh, you sparked my interest in hunting you down for this story. You actually posted something on LinkedIn uh, about your crowdfunding that you're currently doing with your company, Dimacron. And thus far in this series, we've had one episode of talking about crowdfunding with Kelly Roman, which was an excellent episode. But what we've learned is there's ideal companies, there's not ideal companies for this platform in this style of fundraising. And also, it is a truly alternative style of raising capital for medtech and companies in general. A lot is changing in the ecosystem, as you know, and we're about to hear from you. But um, more importantly, it is an opportunity to understand where does crowdfunding necessarily fit within medtech. And the purpose of this series is literally to have the ability to understand what capital and fundraising is all about in our industry of med tech and what is available and accessible and what's not. So very, very excited to have this conversation with you. This will be the second style of crowdfunding conversations that we've had. And obviously, and what will be, I shouldn't say obviously, but what will be quite different from the first one that we had, just so we can learn holistically what's going on and, and certainly an update. So I have talked to MedTech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as certainly investors from around the world in our industry of MedTech. And what I've discovered is clearly there is no silver bullet or magic or even a specific formula. And, and you're going to help us here with even understanding where crowdfunding fits into some of the formulas that exist. But 
in order to raise or even invest capital in med tech, we have to have some comprehensive understanding of what's going on, even though there isn't that magic bullet that we talked about. So my goal here is to extract insights so that we can demystify this process and help MedTech innovators benefit from this information. And so our audience here is MedTech entrepreneurs who hopefully will be very interested in what you have to say today on offering a nuanced opportunity of raising capital and one that's very underutilized in the MedTech industry. And also the investors who are in all the other facets that contribute to our ecosystem. And what I wanna do is share your stories and advice with our listeners so that we can learn from you. And even more specifically for these first time founders or CEOs who have no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital, and certainly may want to consider what crowdfunding can bring to the table. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So before we learn who you are, Ted, and also who and what Dimacron is, and also how crowdfunding fits into our ecosystem, I have some questions I want to toss your way to warm up the conversation. The first one is, what is the lifeblood of a medtech startup and what keeps startups alive? I think one word is two words. One is innovation. It's what uh, is the passion that drives entrepreneurs and people like myself who've worked for large companies, mid-sized companies, but gravitated more to startups is the innovation, knowing that you're changing a patient's lives uh, and their family by, by the, the technology you're working on. So one is innovation. Number two is capital, because without the capital, you, you can't uh, you know get through that valley of death experience that, that many face or, or suffer from to, to bring it to the patient. And then you've been a part of this, and we'll learn more about your background, but the startup world and specifically the company that you're building right now for the past couple of years, in your opinion, and also from the seat that you sit in, what's the hardest part about building a med tech startup specifically? I think, uh, Giovanni, it's a big part of it is um, the fundraising part. You know, it, it is a challenge, you know, for many, many entrepreneurs that start their company are technical background, you know, engineers, they're, they're, they're lab scientists that that patented their idea. Maybe they started in a university lab or um, outside of a university lab, they were fortunate in maybe getting a spin, a spin out of the university, but then they're on their own. They've got to go find investors to be able to fund that idea, you know, through to the prototype, through to the first in man experience, all of the expenses associated with the regulatory pathway and uh, the many facets of being successful, including considering how's it going to get reimbursed. Um, and, and it's getting the funds to do that. And, and uh, many, many uh, brilliant, you know, scientists and engineers or physicians don't have that training. And, um, you know, myself, I come from a commercial background from sales and marketing and business development. So I'm used to selling and pitching and, and, and have that experience. And that's, you know, important for a startup to, to have that perspective, but be prepared. The, the difficulties I'm saying is that is a fundraising. And so that's why I'm grateful that you're doing what you're doing with uh, MedTech Money and Lifeblood Capital, that that service in connecting the startup MedTech world with the funds and the people and the various parties that can provide that to the startups is invaluable. You know, besides the the talent, 
an important aspect of getting the right people on your team early on. Those two things are you're 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 in the uh, you're in the bullseye spot there, Giovanni. Thank you very much, Ted. I I love what I do. I love what our firm does, and we're having fun doing it. And I couldn't agree more that fundamentally that the people and the money are this backbone of startups that at least allow them to keep the doors open and and keep moving forward. So, thank you. This one's more for you. Um, I, for all those listeners in right now who are driving somewhere in their car and they can't see Ted in his beautiful office with his wonderful chairs in the background, et cetera, I'm sure there's some books lying around there somewhere. So for you, what, what book would you recommend our audience to read and why? And it could be anything. Just I want if, sure. if they can walk away with just some high level stuff from this that we're going to talk about, at least they can also walk away with a nugget that uh, you could recommend them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention a book that everyone has pretty much heard of, and probably most of us on this uh, on this uh, podcast have heard, which is which is the Covey principles. You know, the seven habits. I I early in my professional career took the time to to digest that book and digest those principles, and then engage not just myself but my teams in understanding those seven habits, and then went deeper to learn the eighth habit, and then. Uh, I got, I was very fortunate to be able to meet Stephen Covey, you know, when he came to where uh, I was attending one of his um, conferences and um, he hosted a private lunch and it was raining. We were in Memphis, Tennessee. I was able to, I had an umbrella. So I got to walk Stephen Covey all the way back from the restaurant to the, uh, to the conference. And I just told him how much I admired, you know, the stuff he had done. And uh, I told him my background and uh, he, <laughs> He was great. He provided a little tidbit to me. He's like, you know, I'd said, I work for Johnson and Johnson. I work for Medtronic. I work for Boston Scientific. He said, he looked me in the eye and he said, Ted, turning those battleships, those huge megalithic ships is a very difficult thing, but you know, all it takes, you know how it turns is the trim tab. The trim tab and the rudder is what starts the turn. Ted, be the trim tab. I was like, thank you. <laughs> and I've taken that to heart. Uh, you know, it's difficult to move a battleship like Johnson and Johnson in a certain direction, but you you can only control what you can control. And so, understanding that and uh, taking those principles in mind, like begin with the end in mind. This is great for startup entrepreneurs. Um, you know, seek to understand first before you uh, try and tell everyone how much you you know. Uh, th those things are just life lessons that I carried with me. To this day. Love that. Thank you. And you mentioned fundraising is one of the pieces of lifeblood, if not the lifeblood of, of certainly startups and if not medtech startups. I have fun with this one. If you had a magic stick, what would you change about the capital raising process from an entrepreneur's perspective? I would... Um... The frustrations that many small innovative companies uh, encounter is that they just don't get um, the audience, you know, with many of the funds, you know, they get the, the standard answers are, you're too early. Uh, come back to me when you're further along. You um, are not raising enough. You know, I, I, I need to deploy 10 to $20 million, 5 million is not enough for me. Um, uh, you, there's too much risk. You know, you've got to go through a, a IDE, you know, PMA seven-year process. And, and, and there's so many negatives and that's where 
my training in my career as a sales rep, I learned the school of hard knocks, you know, how to, how to get through those, those no's. But um, how could I change that? I don't know if I could change that. Um, I, I would just say uh, my, um, my ask of the institutional capital and investment community is to, uh, is to be open-minded as opposed to have these straight answers that you teach your young, um, you know, Ivy League graduates that are, that are spreadsheet wizards, you know, to, 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 to give straight away without really listening to the story. Just take the time. I know you get that those firms get hundreds, if not thousands of pitches and, and, and it starts to get pretty cold, but the, the, uh, the shame of, uh, of, of the current system is many ideas and many companies uh, basically have to turn the light out or, or get frozen out and just wait because they don't get that opportunity to, um, you know, share the nugget that someone else can understand and the light bulb goes on and they say, that person may not have the ability to build the rest of the team, but let me help them. Let me get the right person involved. Let me get the right seed fund. Let me find some non-dilutive funding options. That's the kind of stuff you're doing, right? Uh, let me find people, find opportunities. It may be equity crowdfunding, which is all new just in the last couple of years because of the changes that Congress made that we're gonna talk about. That's why I was interested uh, to learn more. And what I'm interested in learning more about is, is Dimacron. And you and I actually had a, a brief discussion on the technology, which we're gonna talk about shortly, but yeah. what does the name of your company Dimacron mean? Is there a story behind it? There's a fascinating story, uh, Giovanni. So uh, Dimacron is based in Salt Lake City, Utah. And there is a whole community out in, um, in that area. You know, there's a couple of really strong academic institutions, University of Utah and BYU, Brigham Young University. So uh, Dimacron started, the founder was a biomaterials expert and a professor in the Department of uh, Biomaterials Engineering at BYU. He invented man-made diamond, polycrystalline diamond, the ability to manufacture this um, and was not a med tech uh, guy, applied it to industrial applications, deep earth mining. So he revolutionized, split off, was also an entrepreneur, started various companies for uh, drill bits for deep earth mining. So he put tungsten carbide out of business, made a lot of money, couple different private equity firms bought out his companies. And um, after about a decade of doing that, uh, his neighbor told him, Bill, his name's Bill Pope. I have to go back to the hospital to get an operation on my hip. And he's like, didn't you just have that five, five to seven, seven years ago? I says, yeah, but apparently it's worn out because you know, all, as people know, total joints today are made with plastic and metal, polyethylene and titanium or cobalt chrome. And they have, they create wear debris. So he's like, if I, his light bulb was, if I made your hip out of my diamond material, you would never have to go back for another operation all things considered, as long as the surgeon puts the product in the right way, et cetera. And so he started Dimacron and Dim Dimacron came from diamonds and micron sized particles of diamond grit that is part of the manufacturing process, which is also fascinating. Um, so I've been in, uh, we'll talk about me in a minute, but I've been in medical device med tech for you know, almost 40 years. And we can all, even if you've been in only 10 years or 15 years, Hopefully you've had the opportunity where you've been stopped in your tracks. 
at a meeting, maybe a professional society or an investment conference, and someone shows you something and you recognize it as a game changer. That's different. So Dimacron was one of those things. Three years ago, when a colleague of mine, um, I knew he had left Medtronic, a big 20-year career, one of the best spine engineers I knew, left and went to join little old Dimacron in, in, in Utah, moved from Memphis to Utah. And I said, Eric, I stopped him. I said, show me that disc. And he pulled it out. I looked at it. And it's one of those, you know, few times I've been fortunate to have a couple to say, that's next generation. That's next level. Uh, how can I, how can I help? And that's where it started. I became a consultant, became a board member, and, and they got me in deeper and deeper until asked me to join the leadership team a couple of years ago. Wow. Super cool. So that was a perfect segue into my next question, which is, who are you? But it was a, a tie between Diamond Crown as well as who are you? So I, I want to get a little bit more personal of understanding all those, once again, driving wherever they are, or listening to this podcast, wherever they may be, of listening and understanding who's the guy talking right now? Who, who's the man behind the voice? So Ted, where are you from? Where are you now? And what happened in between leading up to the point where you've built your life? and professional career and academic career and whatever you'd like to share with the audience and who you personally are leading up to now being the chief strategy officer of Dimacron. Great. Thanks, Giovanni. So I um, I was born in Delaware, second smallest state in, in the country. Uh, I lived mostly in the South growing up, uh, Florida, uh, North Carolina, uh, briefly in Tennessee. My father was a physician and a very specialized kind of niche oriented uh, academic, but also research. So at the age of 10, he got an opportunity to move to Cambridge University in the UK. So our whole family moved to the UK when I was 10. He was doing very specialized research in neurodegenerative hereditary disorders like Huntington's disease, uh, like schizophrenia, like Parkinson's, where he started the world's first brain tissue bank at Cambridge University. So, uh, I, I, the family was supposed to be a two to three year uh, project. We were there seven years and I ended up staying eight. So my, my formative years, as they say in the UK, we're in, we're in uh, England from 10 to 18. I ended up going to a boarding school for seven of the eight. I, I, uh, I learned uh, at that young age, how to, how to understand different cultures and, and immerse myself in different cultures that I experienced there. Came back, went to university in the US went to Brown University. My family moved back to Boston and my father uh, was at Harvard University. Uh, They're doing their brain tissue bank. And um, so I had this medical kind of thread in my background, my father, a physician, mother, a nurse. Um, but I did I do uh, medical school? Did I do uh, microbiology as a major? No, I was a, a international relations and political science major. I wanted to go to law school and, and uh, join the CIA or the Foreign Service uh, and go back out into the world. But I got to meet, and this is my message for those that I'm, mentor, that I'm a mentor to, is uh, take advantage of every opportunity that you have, particularly young in your career. And I, I got to meet uh, a gentleman in my parents' hometown that was president of one of the largest sports medicine arthroscopy companies, knee orthopedic companies, and had lived in Belgium and worked for Baxter in Europe. So I just wanted to go find out about what, you know, med tech was, was all about in knees. So he called me when I was a senior in college and offered me a job uh, almost 40 years ago uh, as a sales rep. And, and he was still a mentor to me. 
uh, you said, you've got to learn how to sell, Ted. I'm going to put you in a territory for two years and you're going to learn about our products. You're going to learn about the, the struggles that physicians have with, with, with our products and others. And you're going to learn uh, uh, how, to, how to accept no, you know, multiple times before I, I then want to bring you in and help us with our international, you know, efforts outside the U.S. So he tapped me on the shoulder two years later at the age of 25. I was an international marketing manager for the company that is now Smith & Nephew uh, Endoscopies, their, their sports medicine arthroscopy division out of Andover, Massachusetts. Phenomenal experience. So my career started in sales, went to international, uh, came, came down to uh, the orthopedic side uh, in Memphis with Richards, all part of Smith & Nephew now. And... Uh, Came back to Boston, spent a brief stint, so 40 years now in med tech, um, uh, 35, almost 35 in spine. So I have a deep experience in spine surgery. And uh, my track took me from uh, sports medicine sales to international to orthopedics. I worked for um, Boston Scientific, their microvasive division, through my mentor who had left uh, the company Dionics had gone there and said, come over here. You got to, here's what you're doing next in your career. You're going to become a product manager. You're going to come inside the building of microvasive and, and be the GI endoscopy product manager. It was great experience, but orthopedics drug me back about three years later, Johnson and Johnson orthopedics, you know, headquartered in New Brunswick at the headquarters of J and J at the tender age of 27. I moved, uh, 28 moved up there and was a product director for their sports medicine and their trauma business. This is all pre-Depew, Depew Synthes. So that's where I got stayed in the orthopedic uh, arena. I got into spine um, again 22 years ago when the folks that started Danic, which is now became sophomore Danic, which is now Medtronic, the, the leading spine company in the world, were looking to build a team. And they all came over from Richards after Smith & Nephew bought them. And I'd work with them. So they said, Ted, I know J&J's taking care of you. Would you like to come back to Memphis and, and join? Three products, about $10 million in annual revenue in 1991, and I was employee number 30. So through the 90s, I grew in that role to, to run marketing, to build a company to 500 and almost $600 million, and an acquisition by Medtronic for $3.2 billion in 1999. Wow. And, uh, and, and, and and many of the existing leaders that are CEOs of the top spine companies today came from that team that learned that playbook around how to be a successful, build a successful business and uh, uh, build a successful culture. So I got to do that. And, and, and after that ride, I, that's when I started to gravitate more to smaller companies or mid-sized companies. I've been president of the uh, spine division of Orthofix. I was at Orthofix for seven years. Um, I was chairman of the board of Appifix, an Israeli startup with a unique uh, fusionless scoliosis system that Orthopediatrics bought a couple of years ago, and um, uh, was the chief commercial officer of Titan Spine that uh, innovated. Again, I, one of those things was that's different. They started the whole nanotechnology, surface technology field for uh, inner body implants and spine and helped helped grow that company. Medtronic bought them in 2019 for about $240 million. And, and today, um, I, I'm the chief strategy officer of Dimacron. I told you the story of how I discovered it. 
and then I, I, I do help and support in a consulting role to a, a couple of small early stage uh, or early commercial stage or early preclinical stage companies looking to get into spinal orthopedics. That's me. We certainly now know who Ted Bird is. So thank, thank you for all that. <laughs> and honestly, quite a sizable career that you've built. Um, the 3.2 billion acquisition after joining us, employee 30, that took place, I mean, you joined earlier, but took place in, yeah. in 1999 as a $3.2 billion acquisition. Um, you know, it's just, it's always interesting to think about all the successes and the cultural building and, and how business was truly done before the ages of smartphones and Zooms and, and hyper-communicative yeah. abilities. Pre-pager even, yeah. And there, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's always amazing to hear those stories. So thank you for sharing that. And you've led us all the way up to Dimacron. You've alluded to it. We won't spend too much time on it, but where is Dimacron? What is Dimacron? And what's the the benefits of this style of technology? And, and also we'll get right into the crowdfunding after that, but who and what is Dimacron? Sure. So Dimacron, Dr. Pope, the founder, um, you know, actually started working on a total hip, you know, for his neighbor. So they spent the first few years really adapting this unique man-made diamond, the synthetic diamond material for application in the human body. They couldn't use the same formula that they use for the deep earth mining drill bits. So that took, took quite a while. And it was really kind of an extension of BYU was like a university project for the first 10 years. And uh, they actually you know, did a hip, uh, hip ball and, and, a, and a cup to show that there was no wear debris. But uh, it, it was a challenging business. They, they then pivoted to spine through uh, meeting a PhD uh, engineer at the University of Utah that had developed a, a unique or novel and patented design for an articulating joint in, in the neck, in the cervical spine, uh, which was a trilobe. All of the artificial joints you think of, total hips, total knees, even all the total artificial discs are ball and socket design in general. So trilobe is like three, three legs of a stool instead of, instead of one, more stable, more naturally kinematically uh, similar to the normal anatomic human disc. The problem with the design that this engineer had was existing materials, polyethylene, cobalt, chrome, titanium, could not uh, stand up to the aggressive nature of, of the design of, of the kinematics of the material. So he was told there's a company down the road in Orem, Utah that has this uh, polycrystalline diamond, you guys should meet. And that's when the, the, the spine aspects of Dimacron started about 10 years ago. So there's two, two problems Dimacron solves, a material problem and a design problem. The material is how plastic and metal are gonna wear out. You talk to anyone in total joints and total knee, they, they describe it as uh, an oil change. Hey, it's time for your oil change. You know, seven to 10 years later, no problem. We'll, we'll get you in and get you out. No patient wants to go back to the OR if they don't, you know, if they, if they don't have to. Uh, so polycrystalline diamond basically does not wear. You 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 can't detect it. We we've tried them and we really can't. So it will last beyond a patient's lifetime. It's four thousand times stronger than plastic. A thousand x times stronger than any metal. Um, the so that's the material problem. The design problem is is uh, ball and socket does not. Um, replicate the natural movement in a, in a person's neck. It creates additional stresses that put additional stresses on the other levels of the spine, and that can create breakdown 
and create the need for revision surgery. So the combination of the trilobe with polycrystalline diamond is what really is unique about Dimacron and their triadime artificial cervical disc. Thank you for that. I, it sounds truly like a fascinating technology. And honestly, um, sometimes in orthopedics, and not to over-stereotype, sometimes people get a little sleepy when it comes to that, just based on the whole Me Too product uh, that does exist in that particular industry when it comes to ortho. So, I mean, having something so unique, novel, and different, and also pretty cool that it has diamond slash dime in the name, um, sounds very novel. So thank you for sharing that technology background with us. And it leads me right into how you're currently funding this technology and the technology company. And the, the topic of the hour is crowdfunding. So just giving historical context yet again, you know, it wasn't all that long ago, I came across an awesome post on LinkedIn that you had shared with the world on Dimacron's crowdfunding campaign. And I had to get the story. I had to understand what was going on. And so I want to kick off more open-ended and we can start refining it to Dimacron. But crowdfunding is this nebulous thing. And maybe it's nebulous for the medtech industry or nascent for the medtech industry. Obviously, you mentioned earlier that Congress has made some changes and some updates in their policies, which has enabled it to possibly move quicker. Um, but this has been much more of a direct-to-consumer style platform where a lot of those technology companies and direct-to-consumer product-based companies, they're much more calloused to the crowdfunding idea, but it's still trying to eke its way into to the med tech. And so I want to throw this open-ended question to you and let you run for a little bit, and then we can tailor it from there. From all your studies and from all the pushing that you did to learn about this industry that ultimately led you to implementing crowdfunding for Dimacron, what is the status of crowdfunding in the medtech industry now? Who are the players helping to push this forward in medtech? And then what are the options that startups have in terms of platforms? I know that's a lot, and I'll remind yeah. you if we get lost, but what's sure. at least the status of crowdfunding in medtech right now? Yeah, so it is um, not even a first base. Uh, Giovanni, you know, <laughs> so we're, we're just getting off the home plate, you know, for med tech, for med tech. But I would say, you know, really um, with the changes that Congress made just a couple of years ago, the whole space is still at first base. You know, it's very different in 2023 than it was in 2015 and 16. So the, the fundamentals are what happened? Um, Congress in 2012, when Obama was president, passed a, an act called the Jobs Act, Jumpstart Our Startup Businesses Act, to help private companies be more competitive in raising capital because the IPO market was, was pretty much had not available to those companies very much. And we were losing ground. Our country was losing ground to China that was tripling, quadrupling our small businesses in their ability to access capital and get ahead. But, uh, so there's different channels that were created. What happened two years ago is that they updated that act where um, there's two different channels. One is called a regulation CF, which stands for crowdfunding. Um, previously, up until 21, you, the cap uh, for the raise for these private companies was a million dollars. Really doesn't you know, do a lot for you. Uh, so they raised that cap to 5 million 
annually every year. So um, without having to have tremendous stringent uh, requirements to, to, to file, you don't have to wait for SEC qualification. Um, you, you just have to have, uh, you know, you have to apply and, and have everything in order to do a regulation CF. Regulation A or regulation A plus as it's known, uh, previous the cap for regulation A, which is more stringent uh, was $10 million. Up until 2021, they raised that to 75 million a year. So wow. every year you could raise up to 75 million with, and, and the difference in what this is all about is you can raise this money uh, with the government's approval from unaccredited investors. Um, so as long as you meet the criteria of uh, the requirements in a CF or a, a Reg A, anyone who's 18 and older, there's no, there's no uh, holdback you know, position on the stock. There's not really a trading platform for that stock today, but that's a new development that's happening where there's alternative trading systems are now developing where um, these investors could actually potentially trade this stock. So it's purely an investment, it's like a private investment. But um, some of the numbers are like for, for Reg CF, in 2016, there were 188 companies that went out there to Reg CF. Uh, last year, 2022, 16, uh, about 1,600, 1,584 companies raised $506 million through Reg CF. There was a little dip in 22 versus 21 because of the general economic financial environment. Reg A plus um, was $175 million raised in 2016. They $1.8 billion was raised in 2022 by private companies, okay? Wow. Now, the bulk of those are not med tech. I can pretty much count them on, I think, both of my hands right now. I think it's growing a little faster than that, but um, I first learned about that cap limit change at an investment conference two years ago when someone reached out to me and said, hey, are you aware you know, of the ability to fund a med tech company through the internet, basically through, you can go to unaccredited investors. And uh, I said, no, tell me, tell me more. So um, I learned all about it. And I spent Giovanni really about a year, about 12 to 18 months, just studying and attending all the webinars, learning everything I could about what it takes to be successful. And I followed one company in particular, uh, an orthopedic company, similar to our, in our space called Monogram Orthopedics that has a, a 3D printed total knee and a, a unique patented end effector for a robot that makes them more accurate than the top robot out there, the Striker Mako. They raised over two rounds, $35 million um, uh, in, a reg, in, in, in a reg, two Reg A raises during the pandemic. And, and I followed their materials, attended their webinars. And I, to myself, I was, I was saying, look, if, if they can do it, my story, I felt, and I feel to today still, Dimacron's story with a diamond disc, solving a problem, next generation clearly, with millions of people that have bad degenerative disc disease, it is compelling. And that's, that's point number one. You, you have to have a compelling story to attract an online investor because you have about seven seconds to get their attention and, and then go deeper into your story. So... To educate the others, you know, Reg A plus, you have to be SEC qualified. So you have to have two years worth of gap um, audited financials. Uh, 
you have to kind of have an organized cap table. You can't have, uh, you know, 500 million shares outstanding and, and, and uh, you know, uh, 75 to, to 150 different people on your cap table. You could, but if it's totally unorganized and you have no one's email address, it makes it that much harder. Um, so there are people that will help. There's an, a whole new community now of uh, firms and people that support equity crowdfunding and some that are specializing in med tech capital fundraising. So for those listening, go to you know Monogram Orthopedics, look it up. Uh, you can read their materials. You can look at their videos. Go to Dimacron. Go to uh, invest.dimacron.com. Look at our materials. Look at our uh, videos. We are just one month into our launch of our campaign. Um, there are only a handful of other companies that are out there doing this. Um, we're raising just $15 million in our first time raise. We were advised in a difficult financial environment, don't try and go for 30, don't 40, or certainly don't go for, we don't need 75 million. You know, we need, we need, you know, probably 20, 30, 40 million overall over the next few years to do two FDA studies. So we are, um, you know, using this channel instead of going to a, a venture capitalist or an institutional capital partner to bring that money to our existing shareholders because we are in an FDA study. And, and, and we, we are in spine. And those are two strikes, pretty much, in my experience, when going to the institutional capital. They, there's been a lot of money burned, a lot of failures in spine over the years. There's some great innovations, of course, as well, but they just, it's not a priority for them. Secondly, when you've got an PMA class three product, it's going to take five to seven years to get it through the USA and get to the largest market in the world, the US. So, um, Rather than uh, argue, you know, about the valuation and and the and and, and the, the opportunity and spying them with this artificial cervical disc, I convinced the board at Dimacron that we should be one of the first to go out, raise the awareness about our our solution, our our, our diamond solution for uh, a next generation product for people with with uh, neck pain that that are candidates for an artificial disc. And, um, and attract uh, strategics. Often what happens when you get into an equity crowdfunding because of the online digital nature of it, you'll get investors that come to you. You'll all of a sudden be getting inbound calls from a, an impact investor. Maybe it's a, a venture firm that really feels a compelling story and you're solving a problem and they're gonna listen. That's happened to a couple of companies that have gone out. Uh, many Villafana's company, Medical 21, went out with a $40 million raise Within a few months, he had a $20 million uh, uh, partnership investor that came along and, and partnered with him. And I don't, they probably wouldn't have found out about it if it hadn't been out there. So um, I bounced around a bit, but uh, we can dive a little more specifically and deeper into, into uh, what I've learned, but I'm excited about it. I, I think it's, uh, it's the tip of the iceberg uh, for, for uh, not just for MedTech, but for Anybody that's got a, a side gig with a private business and you're, you've, got a, you've got a brother or a cousin with a brewery and you're trying to make a name for yourself, go to the crowd and you can give them free t-shirts and hats and uh, get some money in return. 
I love that. And honestly, I, I have so many questions bouncing around in my head right now. So if we can tailor it down to get some tactical yeah. information out to our audience, I think that would be super helpful. Um, you mentioned that you're raising 15 million right now. Obviously, you mentioned the Reg A plus could go up to 75 million. Yeah. So a couple of things that I want to just dig into. The first one is when you're locked into a raise with crowdfunding, does it preclude you? And I think you were touching base on it, but does it preclude you? to raise capital from other styles of investors? Like, so for example, if you were raising 15 million and that's what you were saying on crowdfunding, let's just say you were already up to 5 million or 7 million and through the powers that be, there was an impact investor or a VC that came out of nowhere and said, I wanna finish off. If you have seven right now, I wanna take the other eight um, and then close your, can you do that? Or when you're opening up a platform and campaign, are you locked in? No, that is possible, uh, Giovanni. And, and particularly for, for an investor or a, a firm or a, a fund that's willing to come in at a higher level, um, you, you know, you, you can, you can uh, basically provide them a partnership opportunity. Uh, for example, at Dimacron, uh, all the capital raised to date at Dimacron has been through friends and family, no outside money. It's all angels and, and network primarily in the Utah area from the founder and his, uh, his network, all through a convertible debt, you know, series of rounds to support the company through the, the total hip through to the, the cervical spine. But, um, you know, now we're looking at the bill for two FDA studies, you know, up to $40 million needs to be spent to get those done to get that valuation of the company uh, and the ability potentially for an exit by a larger strategic that wants a next generation disc, but they don't wanna do the study. Um, they could fund it for the next 40 million, but you know, this, is, this is another way. So, so, um, so that's why we're, we're doing that uh, at Dimacron. And um, I'll leave it at that. We'll keep diving into some of the other points that you want. I don't know if that answered your question. 100%. Yeah. So basically, yeah. You, you can treat this as an option to syndicate. Like, so we hear of, yeah. of, of raises where maybe there's a lead that is an institutional investor, and then the round is filled out with two to five family offices, right? So two different, or maybe there is a family office and a group of angels. So what you're saying is truly crowdfunding is an additional alternative um, and you can use that as a syndication partner uh, amongst other styles of investment along the way to get to you or to get to the end line where you need to be. Yeah. And the way to think about that, say you're an early stage company, uh, you're having a difficult time just getting in the door on, you know, Sandlot Road in, in Palo Alto or wherever you're going. And um, uh, a Reg CF, you know, a fairly inexpensive way to get out there. All, all of a sudden raises your profile, you know, besides trying to do it on your own through LinkedIn, you know, brand branding, online digital efforts, uh, you do it this way, uh, people will, will sit up and take notice, particularly if you, if you um, are uh, smart about your, your messaging and marketing approach. And that's, that's so important in, in equity crowdfunding. That's probably the most important factor is picking your partners and, you know, the marketing aspect of uh, how you do it. So you mentioned the words earlier, cap table, and I want to touch base on a conversation that you and I had even earlier, but I'll use the extreme situation. So let's just say we have a reg A plus and we do want to raise the max at 75 million. And 
these are now non-accredited investors. And once again, I'm overgeneralizing here, but you know, when you go on to the platform, um, these investors can invest a hundred bucks if they want to, something simple. So let's go with that. If you're raising 75 million and you have people who come onto your platform and campaign and they invest a hundred dollars each, that's 750,000 investors that get on your cap table. You and I talked about this earlier offline, but how does crowdfunding handle the the cap table management process? Like what what does it mean when you all of a sudden, because we hear so many times within the medtech startup community, at least I do when I talk to my founders and CEOs, et cetera, cap table management and keeping a clean, organized cap table is a serious focal point within a fundraising campaign or strategy. How does crowdfunding fix that when you possibly have 750,000 people on your cap yeah. No, it's mind-blowing. And, and that was one of my first questions when I heard about it. It's like, I can't even imagine, you know, because I've been dealing with more traditional ways of managing, uh, like most of the listeners here, you know, uh, of a cap table with, with just a few partners. And you know, when you expand that, you know, through friends and families and angels and families offices, and it starts to get long, um, you know, you start to sweat a little bit. But uh, in today's world, um, that that's one of the key partners that is so important is a transfer agent that manages that cap table. And you have to budget for that and uh, embrace that, that they manage it all for you. So you it, it takes kind of that sweat off your brow uh, if you hire the right partner that does that. And also is your kind of investor relations arm to ensure that you're continuing to communicate with those investors and, and not you know, having them feel like they're left in the dark. And, and create problems for you. So um, the digital aspects of marketing is, is so different today than it was just a few years ago. It's the same thing with cap table management. And I know there's various services that provide that for you know, traditional Reg D you know, type raises and, and or IPOs that do it very efficiently, but it's the same thing on the, on the equity crowdfunding. But these people, these firms are specialists with the equity crowdfund type investor they know, you know how to manage them. And generally that partner will also manage the cash flow. So they'll manage the transaction from a credit card to a bank to bank transfer to, um, to, uh, you know, to making sure that the, the compliance aspect is also being done correctly. And that's the other partner you know, that you need besides the, the transfer agent to manage your cap table and manage the transfer of funds the broker dealer, the fin, you gotta have a FINRA registered broker dealer that does the compliance check on every single investor to make sure you're not laundering money, you know, where where we shouldn't be coming into your cap table and, uh, you know, go, abiding by FINRA rules. And, 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 and you have to actually have to get FINRA approval uh, for your relationship with your broker dealer. That's one of the hurdles before you can start your campaign. You know, SEC is one of them, but getting FINRA, FINRA approval for your, broker dealer is a second one. So going back to more of these tactical questions, again, I want to keep the education going for these listeners who can understand how to implement it, or at least have be aware to ask smarter questions if they do decide to pursue this. You mentioned also earlier to me, there's five key partners that a startup should have when implementing a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. You just mentioned one of them, the FINRA licensed broker dealer, but yeah. what are those five key partners that you need to surround yourself with if you are a medtech startup and about to embark on a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. 
So, you know, I would start with um, an, an equity crowdfund experienced, um, an SEC experienced law legal partner. So your legal partner, the one that helps you put the materials together um, in the format that's required, whether you're doing a Reg CF or a Reg A, and, and many of them also do the work too. If you just want to do for Reg D, you've got an investor group to do it. They do all of that. So the legal partner with that kind of experience that um, also most of these, these folks, these people uh, are ex-SEC or ex-Wall Street you know, attorneys that work for the big firms. So they, they know or have relationships with, 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 those, uh, with the SEC and others. So um, don't go for the cheapest, you know, like you do with anything, it, it, painting your house or, or, or getting a plumbing job in your house. Cheapest uh, bid is not going to always work. Uh, so do your homework, and that's what I did for Dimacron as part of my, uh, you know, twelve-month uh, process to uh, interview and 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 learn from from all the different uh, options that are out there. Some of them are a lot, you know, more cost-effective and, and less expensive. But uh, you know, I talked to various companies that use them and say, I wouldn't do that again. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, go go for the best, and and that's that's what I convinced my board to do. So legal partner number one. They help you write your your uh, your one A equivalent of your, you know, your IPO statement if you're doing the the SEC qualification, and um, do all the diligence and they know what the questions that the SEC has, so it can shorten your cycle um, from potentially four to six months down to, you know, not a few weeks. I would say allow at least a couple of months to get SEC approval. Secondly. Um, your broker dealer, you have, you're required to have a FINRA registered broker dealer. They do the compliance work. They do all the double checks and um, that you're, you're in good standing with each, each, each investment that comes in and they have to work hand in hand. They usually work hand in hand with the legal partner and with the transfer agent. That's the third one It's the transfer agent. The one that manages your cap table, that manages the process, that has the portal to, to allow it to be friction-free ideally, or as frictionless as possible for the investor that, that, that that's interested, that wants to put in a hundred bucks, or our minimum is a thousand, you know, wants to get a thousand, or they want to buy, you know, 5,000, you know, shares and a few more units, they don't get hung up, you know, getting stuck between having to provide their driver's license or, or, or um, other documentation required from the compliance department. So law partner, broker dealer, transfer agent, Number four is probably the most important partner. Take your time interviewing, understanding who these 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 what these this partner's capabilities are. It's your marketing partner, digital online marketing, not just creative, uh, you know, to make uh, exciting TikTok videos and things that that stop people in their tracks and take them to the next level, but have a whole understanding and can dive deep in understanding your technology and how to tell the story and create really important pillars for investors to want to know what's the moat, you know, what, what, what makes this unique? What, what's the traction? Where is this going? What's the, what's the, what's, what, how can I get my money back? And how to tell the story, the storyteller, and, and do it in a way that is effective on Google ads, Facebook ads, TikTok literally is, is used and, and, uh, and your own create, you know, your own campaign video and, and, and be able to adjust. You know, uh, what I've learned in marketing, uh, digital marketing for equity crowdfunding is you have to ha have plan A, B, C, and D. So you start, and as where we are in our first month, you 
have to have a partner that actually sees the data, that understands what people are clicking on or how deep are they going into your video. They see everything. You know that when you look at your cell phone, you decide you want to look at a Mercedes van because you, your, 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 your partner have a dog that you travel across country every other year and you want to get a luxury van. Well, next, next day, all of a sudden, you're getting pop-up ads of luxury vans from, from, uh, from different companies, but particularly Mercedes. These, these digital marketing online you know, people are unbelievable at being able to you know, develop uh, an audience, generate interest, and continue to follow up and get them to move from a general interest to coming to your landing page, to looking at your subscription agreement, to signing an agreement, to then funding that agreement. So the, the, it's a process. And so the marketing partners, number four. Number five, this is something that's not you know absolute, but I would recommend it, is an investor, professional equity crowdfunding investor relations partner. That's a team that they're the closers. So they're the ones, once you have that name, that email, that phone number, does the follow-up. Because there's a lot of tire kickers, and we, we recognize that. You're going to have potentially 750,000, you know, 500,000 out of 750,000 tire kickers. And so how do you determine who's serious, who's not, and, and be able to do that work? If, you, if you're going to uh, not spend that uh, few thousand dollars a month to retain them to do it, and put it on your chief strategy officer, you're gonna burn that, that, that person out pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, plus the management team for these small startups, they need to focus on managing the business and hitting the milestones and getting your product in and through an, an FDA trial or getting your next prototype, you know, done. If you spend your whole time talking to Johnny, Johnny Smith in, 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 in uh, Idaho um, about why he's not, you know, funded his $100 investment, then, you're not going to you know, hit your milestones. Yep. So those are the those are the five uh, key partners. Thank you for that. And and I think a good understanding of all the information thus far is we know typical capital raising and fundraising for medtech startups, whether it is through angels, through family offices, through institutional investors, certainly through corporate venture capital. There's timelines, and we've talked about it on this series numerous times where. You know, apocalyptically, if something goes wrong and there's a huge pivot somewhere in between, it could take upwards of 18 months to raise capital. Healthy, healthy, with likelihood of not needing all of it, people should budget a year. Um, it's very typical to have a full nine months. Six months is certainly doable, um, fairly aggressive and highly efficient if possible. And, you know, then you're talking about single digit percentage chances of anything happening underneath six months. And I usually chuckle when I talk to first-time founders or or just early stage startups um, that contact me or just in general tell their story of, you know, we're just kicking off our fundraising. We got to go close 5 million uh, by April and it's February 15th. And you're like, I think you're not either going to do that properly, or you probably should have started four or five months earlier. So um, my whole point is, when we talk about this new style of funding, which is crowdfunding, what is the timelines to pursue this campaign properly? And where does that fit in? Like, what can we expect? Is this something like where you go to GoDaddy, you buy a website, you put some stuff on there and you start generating money in 24 hours? Or what does this really look and feel like? So, so you're given a year, 12 months, you know, uh, for, for your application for like a Reg A, and I believe it's the same for a Reg CF. So you have 12 months 
you know, we qualified on January 25th. So 26th, we have until January 25th, 2024 to keep our existing campaign open. Then you can, you, know, you can extend your campaign under, under certain cat circumstances uh, if, if, you, if you need to. Um, but you need to plan for a year. And um, generally, it's, it's, if, if you have a successful campaign um, planned with all the right partners, uh, you can expect about nine months, nine, 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 nine to 12 months. So similar to, to raising capital, as you mentioned, is, is realistic. The first two months are really your learning period. That's where you're seeing what's working and what's not, and 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 you're doing all the adjustments to your materials. And and this leads me to another point, which is a really important point that I learned uh, about equity crowdfunding. There's different ways to do it. There's a less expensive way, which is use a platform, StartEngine.com, SeedInvestEquity.com, which StartEngine bought recently. Um, these platforms provide a one-stop shop. We're the dealer broke broker dealer. We're the transfer agent. We're the marketing arm, and um, we're the closers too. And uh, it doesn't cost you that much. So it's a one you know fee to do all that. A percentage of, of money raised uh, for the broker dealer, and uh, you know certain certain uh, upfront fees. <clears throat> what I learned, Giovanni, is. When you go that route, you don't see or own the data. So all of those investors, their emails, how deep they're going, how far that you don't see that. That's with the start engine folks. And that's like going to a, a, a mall, a local mall and setting up a pop-up stand to sell sunglasses. You're trying to attract investors that are walking through that mall, looking at all these different, you know, cannabis and real estate and the med tech here and there, and they might stop on Dimacron but so you spend less money to do that. I'm not trying to downplay them. There's been some successes. Monogram Orthopedics used Start Engine as one of their platforms to raise their 35 million early days, though. You know, there, there were really no other competitors in MedTech at that time. But I was advised by the guy who actually helped Monogram be successful, their marketing digital person. He explained to me, he says, if I can get it's not so much about being creative, but it's about the analytics. I have a team of analytic uh, people that analyze every single piece and data point that we get in order to optimize our, our marketing campaigns and ensure that the, the money you spend on advertising, which is a lot more than you're going to spend in general to, 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 to raise money to the traditional way, is effective. And you're not just blowing money and not getting a return. So... Um, that's the alternative to using a start engine. You do a self-hosted campaign. So um, you hire those five partners. You set up, as we have, invest.dimacron.com. You go to the Dimacron page. You don't go to the start engine page and then try and find Dimacron. And then the algorithms that start engine, only if you're successful in their top 10 raises that week or that month, do you get to pop up on their, their front page. I'm going to have to time out here just because I find this incredibly fascinating. So you're, and help me if I'm right or wrong here, but you're saying you actually created your own crowdfunding platform. You didn't use one of the ones that the, the top five or three that everyone somewhat knows about if they're even remotely familiar with crowdfunding, like Dimacron actually created its own five partners and its own website and did its own thing. Correct. It's not our platform. We used 
their platforms that we own because we're paying for it, but we own the data. So it's a huge difference. So it's like creating your own store instead of having a, a, a online store, instead of having a pop-up stand in a mall. So thank you for the analogy. But, and then just for my own clarification, th- these top three, and, and we'll use Start Engine as Kickstarter is one of them, Start Engine, the other yeah. one, like there, there's some big names out there, but yeah. are you saying that you leveraged their platform, but paid a certain amount and then so you could own the data and analytics and did your own thing? Or are you saying, tell me, tell me the difference between someone who jumped on a Start Engine and what Dimicron did, just make it super clear. Yep. So um, the partner I picked is, is, is a company called Dealmaker. So Dealmaker uh, provides the analytics platform that is, that is super strong for, for you to understand and own that, that data. So the fee that we pay to, Dimicron, uh, to uh, Dealmaker is to utilize their platform, but it's, it's our data. And then it just happens that uh, Dealmaker is one of the more successful ones. They're a Toronto Canadian-based company, uh, tech company, all ex, you know, Wall Street people, um, offers Dimacron uh, the ability to, they bought the, the top marketing firm that was out there, one of the top marketing, digital marketing firms, and brought them under their umbrella. They started their own broker-dealer. So they kind of did a lot of the things that Start Engine has, but the difference is, we own the data. It's a Dimacron website. It's not a DealMaker website, and 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 they're the they're the engine, you know, <laughs> behind the Dimacron banner, Got as it. opposed to being under the umbrella of Start Engine and getting lost. That's fascinating. Okay, well, thank you. That's a really important point and a huge differentiator because, once again, to my limited knowledge, you know, there's a top five or certainly a top three or two that own this whole peripheral slash big level understanding of crowdfunding, start engine, Kickstarter, all that kind of stuff. And I thought everyone just out of obligation had to jump on these things, but you're saying that there's ways to personalize it and customize it. And and the key differentiator is owning your own data versus not, which is very important. Particularly if you want to go back, if you're successful and you want to do uh, another race, you know, you've got already this community of followers and fans and investors and in 2024, we may go back and raise, you know, another 10 million. So better that you own that data than to start over with the platform and say, okay, let's do it again. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. Um, I want to jump into this big open-ended question. Why is crowdfunding considered expensive money? We also talked about this earlier offline, but when you say expensive money, what does that mean? Because obviously I'm sure every entrepreneur raising money right now who is listening to this drooling being like, wow, this is actually cool. Like, let's figure this out. All of a sudden expensive money is like, what? What does that mean? What does expensive money mean? It's marketing. It's the cost of uh, digital online marketing primarily to, to, to access that audience. You need to be, that's gonna cost anywhere from a low of 10% of your raise to 15% of your raise. And and that's that's significant, you know. Um, you Sometimes need to be aware that's of that. almost double what a traditional investment banker might charge you at seven to five percent. Yep, exactly. Wow, exactly. So so that's 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 the cost of, of getting getting this money. It's expensive, and then you you add the other fees that, that you have usually retainer based, and it's usually smaller just for your broker dealer. You know, it's usually somewhere between one to three percent. So 
it can be up to 20% when you add it all together. Um, so it's a different realm than, than doing it more traditionally. But again, you're looking at uh, alternatives and maybe you're stuck as a company. You're, you're not uh, getting traction with the institutional community um, and, and you wanna break out of that and, and raise the awareness or you have a product that's a, a great product for the consumer. Maybe it's in the diabetes space where uh, they're gonna they're gonna use a new patch or something or a wearable. And what a great why not get out there and spread the word? Not only get investors, but get consumers, patients, potential people that can benefit from your technology that want to go to their provider and say, "Hey, I want that product." And and um, and and then that it, equity crowdfunding does that. It puts your 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 technology and your name out there. So like you mentioned, Fisher Wallace you know, did it because they had a diagnostic type product that, uh, you know, the, instead of direct to consumer marketing, which is also expensive, they, they raise funds while also getting the word out, you know, on, uh, on their technology. So then from a strategy perspective, help me out on this. I don't know if it's what people do, if it's ethical, if it's not, ethical, how does it work? But do you factor in and put that cushion on there? So say, for example, you have to go run a clinical trial. You said 40 million, but let's use a simple number like 10 million. Yeah. Let's say you really do need 8 million. Let's call it that. You need you really need 8 million for everything that you really do need. But if, if you know it's going to cost you 20% of what you raise to pay out all this partners and fees, et cetera, to be able to get the money that you fundamentally know that you need, do you go out and raise 10 million and factor in the 20%, knowing that by the time you get paying out all your partners, you're left with 8 million and that's fundamentally what you need. Like, are you cushioning that or are you also, not also, but, or are you taking a back step from what you really need for this expensive money? No, we're, we're, we're including that in our, in our budget numbers, you know, so knowing okay. that we, we need to, if there's going to be a cost associated with, with getting it done, it's, it's acceptable in this format to have transactional fees because there's various transactional fees you can you can you can have the investor pay at the time that they pay for their their number of shares they're buying there's maybe a, a 35 dollar you know per transaction fee or up to a 50 50 dollar fee to, to help cover some of the transactional cost not all of it but um, you know that's in our overall budget so we know when we net it out we, we we're going to get what we need to to do what we need to do. And at a high level, once again, where do the costs go? I mean, you said digital marketing and then other partners, but just in reality, throw out some fundamental basic things that if someone is really wanting to entertain this idea, what do they need to actually purchase or create, et cetera, which costs money, yeah. and launch? What does it really look like? You need you need to have uh, at least one hundred and fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars upfront money to before you can go live with your campaign, and that's that's the cost of of um, you know paying the retainer for your your legal partner. That's going to be somewhere between thirty five to sixty thousand dollars you know flat fee to to get it all done before you through to getting SEC qualified. And then you need to budget, you know, um, just ongoing fees, maybe $25,000 a year for your annual reports that your your requirements are. If, if you don't have an in-house financial team to do that, um, you, you have to have the retainer piece, uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, anywhere from again, 35 to 
fifty, sixty thousand dollars for the marketing partner to, to to get them engaged to put all the materials together ahead of time. And then there's an, a monthly retainer that can be anywhere from from ten, twelve, up some of them up to twenty thousand a month. You know, just 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 to, during the, the during your campaign uh, to do the work to continue to put the ads out there. Um, uh, so there's that. Then there's just the actual spending, you know, uh, uh, for the advertising and the paid partnerships that you do to get placed into different um, newsletters and and um, you know things that you you want to get in front of those investors on. The um, audit, you know, you got to figure out if your auditor that you're currently using, your CPA firm, is comfortable with equity crowdfunding. Many of them aren't. They 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 say I don't want anything to do with that, you know, because or your current lawyer, I don't. No way, I'm, you know, this is, again, it's not so much, this is not WeFunder or, or, or Kickstarter, you know, it's it's different today than it was just a few years ago. Um, and so we had to go find a, a different, you know, uh, audit firm that was comfortable or law firm who was who comfortable with it um, because they do it day in and day out. That's what they do today. The audit can be anywhere from, you know, um, 30 to, you know, $70,000, $75,000 a year. So that all adds up. I'm getting up to that 200000 before you actually go live, get the SEC qualification. And then you can't expect money to be rolling in to cover all those monthly retainers and, and, and beyond until probably 60 days into it. So you, you have to have the, the, the cash uh, flow um, capability to kind of see this through uh, to like 90 days in and then, the way these campaigns work in general is as you get closer towards the end, it is truly a hockey stick. You know, like most things, people, until they know they're going to lose out and you're about to close your campaign, a lot of that money comes in at the very end. You know, you're saying we're closing our campaign, invest now or you lose the opportunity. So your expenses go up because you're advertised that much heavier as you're getting close to that campaign. And you'll see that with a Dimecrine campaign. We're in our first month, um, you know. We just started putting stuff out there. In, in six months, your phone's going to be blowing up with Ted Bird and Dimacron and 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 and, uh, and people with neck pain. <laughs> Very good. Um, and the one thing I, I wanted to ask you is is for specifically the medical device industry, the med tech industry. Who are some of the players that are even remotely aware slash pushing this? Like for all these people who are listening in right now, I mean, you're a med tech company, a medical device company. We've we've uncovered the fact that med medical device companies are really new to this idea of crowdfunding. Other industries necessarily aren't. Um, but where can we go for med tech help right now? Like who who's pushing this? Who are some of the players that are in this? Talk about that. Yeah, sure. No, I... I learned about this by uh, attending for the first time the LSI, Life Science Intelligence uh, meeting uh, that Scott Pentel and his team put on. And uh, the gentleman there was um, giving credit, Stephen Brock with the Medical Funding Professionals was was focused on med tech and, and educating people on the equity crowdfunding opportunity. So, um, you know, and I've, I went back, I presented the, the year after it last year, and I'll be there this year, um, mainly to keep my oar in the water and, and to keep to stay, you know, not to stay relevant, but to stay connected in this dynamic community. So that's one, the LSI group, 
there's a group, there's a guy called Oscar uh, Joffrey with Core Connects, begins with a K. Go to their website. Uh, they have tremendous resources, webinars, materials, just educating people. So Stephen Brock, Oscar Joffrey, I can send you these. You can, you can post them in the link uh, afterwards. And then look at different companies' campaigns active right now, besides Dimacron. You've got McGinley Orthopedics, which is an orthopedic surgeon trying to raise $40 million through a reggae using Oscar and Steve, you know, uh, self-hosted platform. Um, you've got uh, Manny Villafana with Medical 21 with an artificial, you know, cardiac vessel that they're developing. I believe they're still active today, raising a reggae $40 million. You've got Monogram Orthopedics. Look at their material. They've raised 35 so far. I believe they're now positioning themselves for an IPO on NASDAQ as a next step. You know, so they've kind of used this as a platform to get there. Um, look at dealmaker.tech. Uh, That's the partner I chose. There's material there about what they do. And look at Start Engine. I mean, don't ignore it. I'm not trying to put Start Engine down. It's just what I've learned. And, um, you know, uh, it may be depending on your company that, you know, you don't have to spend $250,000 to do a Start Engine. You could do it for a lot less or, you know, less than a hundred thousand to do a platform, but just be aware of, you know, the upsides and the downsides of the different options that you have. And in signing off for all those listeners and um, all of this information, oh, and by the way, I, I do want to go back to one point that I almost forgot. You talked about the expensive money piece and having nearly a quarter million, if not a quarter million, just to get out there. Is that tied specifically to the Reg A plus for raising those larger numbers, or is that also applicable to the Reg CF, which could raise smaller amounts, and then that would be super expensive money? The Reg, the reg CF would be less. Yeah, you, okay. you, could, you could get into a Reg CF for 50 to 75. Okay. So still expensive money, just a little bit on, in terms of ratio, it's playing the game. Okay, very good. Um, last thing I want to sign off for all those listeners is you mentioned some of the players who are getting involved. Obviously, your company, Dimacron's in there. Monogram, the other company that you mentioned, is in there. What is philosophically or fundamentally, what is an ideal profile and what's a non-ideal profile of a med tech startup company that should be considering crowdfunding? I want to leave off with all those listeners in there. Is it really something that you should spend time and money thinking about or is your company not necessarily the right status for medtech and maybe that's the reason why it hasn't had completely blown up yet but i want to hear from you what's the ideal and non-ideal profiles yeah i would say ideal you know profile or a good profile would be a company that has an innovative compelling story that would be uh, compelling to those investors online so that's that's number one that you're going to stop them in their tracks they're going to say wow that, that's a problem you're solving a big problem uh, I can relate. I want to learn more. So, uh, but 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 the other factor is um, how old your company is. You know, are, are are you, and how 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 has your experience been in fundraising from the traditional sources? If you're frustrated with that, you're not getting traction. Um, and thirdly, if your technology or product has broad appeal, you know, to uh, patients, potential patients and the consumer, even if it's a wearable or a digital technology, I think that's a, that's a strong factor for considering equity crowdfunding because you're raising the awareness out there with the public uh, in addition to potentially in helping fund uh, your company to take it to the next level.
The non-ideal company would be one that's that uh, has a clear, you know, track. They're maybe fairly early on. Um, they have strong fundamentals, you know, in terms of the technology, and they're, they're also solving a problem. But um, they they uh, they don't need to spend the the high expense because they can attract the, the venture capitalists. That you know, you need ten. $20 million to get you over the, the line or maybe 40. Um, there are, you know, a number of funds, as you know, Giovanni and, and, and uh, investors that are willing to jump in with those key factors. You've got a clean cap table. You don't have, uh, you know, it's not messy. It, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Your valuation is at a reasonable level still. You know, if that's a good factor, you don't have to spend all that extra money to go to equity crowdfunding. Phenomenal. Super insightful. I am so grateful that I saw your campaign or at least the announcement of your campaign on LinkedIn. And I'm so glad that I reached out to you. And I'm so glad that you accepted and came on to the MedTech Money podcast where we demystify and raise, I should say demystify raising and investing capital in MedTech. That's what we do here on this series. And um, and you just came on and told your story because honestly, I do have to say it is very different uh, from the first episode that we did on crowdfunding. Because in fact, I, I do know that um, Kelly Roman ended up jumping onto one of those platforms that the world knows about, and it certainly worked for him successfully. But I had no idea, literally, even though we talked about this offline, um, I had no idea that you had this custom approach and that these even different areas and aspects of uh, and services of providing this custom approach so that companies can own their analytics. And I also didn't even know that you couldn't own your analytics and, and data if you work with some of the, the bigger guys that are well, well known in the space. So huge learning lessons, um, a nice update on what's going on in crowdfunding. I have to say thank you so much, Ted Bird, for jumping on here and sharing your story. This is Ted Bird, the Chief Strategy Officer of Dimacron. And he just shared his story on the MedTech Money podcast series where we just did more demystifying of raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you, Giovanni. And for those that are interested, again, take a look at invest.dimacron.com. We're going to be doing our first webinar next week, Thursday, March 16th, 2 p.m. Listen in with the live investor senior management team update and um, you know, follow our progress. We appreciate your time and, and your interest. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.